Hello, my name is Ollie Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. How fortuitous that we are indeed the preeminent pro John Let's Go podcast when we have such a film as this. Uh, for our bonus episode this year, we have graced you with our episode on Harry and the Hendersons. Of course, starring John Lesko, where he befriends a Bigfoot. <laughs> this is true. We will now play for you the trailer to the aforementioned Harry and the Hendersons. For ages, he has hidden in the forest. Eluded hunters, baffled scientists and remained a mystery until the Hendersons bumped into him. What is it? It's a major discovery. We have to take it home. George. It's alive! It's eating my 15th birthday corsage! Uh Uh-oh. George, he's coming back! Stop him! Exercise, Irene. This is it. The whole world's gonna know. Ran away. I gotta find him. I'm going to kill you. Means something to me. Can't you see that? He means something to me. We'll never see him again, will we? What I'm gonna say now might save his life. There has been yet another sighting of the creature that some people are now calling. Since right now, the average American family just got bigger. Harry and the Hendersons. Isn't he something? That was the trailer for Harry and the Hendersons. It is a family comedy directed by Michael Deere, and it follows the Henderson family. Father George, played by John Lithgow, Mother Nancy, played by Melinda Dillon, daughter Sarah, played by Margaret Langrick, and son Ernie, played by Joshua Rudoy. George is a bit of a gun nut, and the family is on their way back from a camping trip in the woods on which Ernie has successfully hunted and killed his first rabbit, which is causing some friction with the less bloodthirsty women folk. This discord is placed on the back burner, however, when, on the drive back, the Hendersons strike and seemingly kill a Sasquatch, played by Kevin Peter Hall, with their car. Seeing dollar signs, George ties the poor creature to the roof of the family hatchback and brings it home. To the Hendersons' shock, however, the hairy fellow turns out not to be dead, just stunned. And after a brief spot of panic when he wakes up in the middle of the night, the family realise he's a sweetheart. They try and decide what to do with him, but before they can settle on an answer, the Sasquatch who they have named Harry, wanders off. As the Hendersons desperately search for their new friend, sightings of him soon drive the city into a panicked frenzy, attracting busloads of Bigfoot hunters from all around. Chief among them is Jacques Lafleur, played by David Suchet, a Sasquatch obsessive who is determined to find and kill Harry. What's worse, he actually has a pretty decent lead on the big guy, 
and it soon leads him right to the Hendersons. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on Harry and the Hendersons. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I've been excited to talk about this movie with you, Lawson, ever since we watched it. Just from the way that you just sighed, it seems like you didn't much enjoy it, but I have a lot of things to say. This is a movie with some capital T themes that I want to talk about. And I really enjoy the performances here. Harry is a fantastic costume character, performed brilliantly by the Predator himself. And John Lithgow is John Lithgow. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is an incredibly well-made family feature with an outstanding practical effects for the suit for Harry. The ambulation on the face is particularly notable. I love the use of lighting here. That was a surprise to me. I didn't expect such effort put in there. And John Lithgow is the only person I think who could actually sell this. Any other actor, you have a lesser film. I can't go with you guys on this one. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it's pretty blur. I think a lot of the stuff it sounds like you're praising is sort of baseline competence. But I will agree that Harry is a pretty phenomenal creation, especially given the time that it was made in. And I appreciate that it goes for some of the themes that it goes for, even if I do think that it rarely does more than scratch the surface of them. John Lithgow is, of course, fantastic, but that should be a given. Despite the fact that this movie actually has a fairly decent cultural footprint and people know about it and still reference it and it's still, you know, is rocking around in the pop culture ether, there's virtually nothing online about the making of this movie. Like, I mean, like, probably less than any other movie we have ever done a production history on. And that is weird to me, but that's where we are. Actually, I can only find really two points about the film other than its release information and it is one that it had a truly wretched tagline the tagline on the poster was when you can't believe your eyes trust your heart That one doesn't go down very smooth. But also, uh, while American promotional materials obscured Harry, people wondered if that had lowered the box office, but it sort of kept from audiences what the movie was actually about. And so when it was released in the UK, the film was actually renamed Bigfoot and the Hendersons. That's not the same kind of rain. No. That's the alliteration. doesn't have it. The film was released in the United States on the 5th of June, 1987. Its widest release there was in 1,424 theatres, and it opened number three at the box office against The Untouchables. The movie was a financial success. It made $50 million worldwide on $10 million budget, and it was the 21st highest grossing movie of 1987, which I suppose sort of goes to show how recent that, like, huge grossing movies are, like, even adjusted for inflation, that's under $200 million for the 21st highest grossing movie of the year. Hi, this is Jean from the future at literally 8 at night. And I just wanted to talk about how, before we get to the international release, uh, I found this interesting TV spot about its US release. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I found it. So here that is. Sneak Preview's Michael Medved calls Harry and the Hendersons a delightful romp, a funny, touching, classy piece of entertainment, a hit the size of Bigfoot. 
definitely going to go see it again. It was absolutely amazing, and it's hysterical. David Anson of Newsweek says, Shit. Harry is lovable, a surefire scene stealer. Funniest movie I've seen in a long time. You walk out of there feeling good. It was great. I loved it. Harry and the Hendersons is great. Harry and the Hendersons, rated BG, now playing at theaters everywhere. The film was released on the 10th of December 1987, a full half a year later in Australia. I can't track down most of the other records. Apparently, the records of Australian box office don't go back that far, at least on the sites that I use. But the movie received mixed to negative critical reception. It has a 45% Rotten Tomatoes rating, and it's apparently not big enough for Rotten Tomatoes to have gone back to add in a critic's consensus in retrospect. The movie did, however, get an A- cinema score, because cinema scores are actually been around for quite a while. Mm. What might surprise you is that this is an Academy Award winning movie. It won the Oscar for Best Makeup in 1988. It won for Rick Baker, who helped design the Harry makeup. And it earned it. Mm-hmm. It also uh, was a nominee at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films Saturn Awards, where it was nominated for Best Family Film, Best Actress for Melinda Dillon, Best Makeup, and Best Director. What are you making that face for, Harley? Best Makeup, sure, but I don't know about the others compared to what else was coming out that year. What was its competition? Oh, let's look it up. I knew you were going to ask that. Saturn Awards 1988. So, fantasy film, it was nominated against Batteries Not Included, Date with an Angel, The Living Daylights, The Witches, The Living Daylights, The Bond Film. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't yes. track. Yes. That is that is the Bond film and The Witches of Eastwick. And it was nominated against the one that, that won ultimately was The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Best director was Catherine Bigelow, Near Dark, Joe Dante for Inner Space, William Deere for Harry and the Hendersons, Jack Shoulder for The Hidden, Stan Winston for Pumpkinhead, and the winner was Paul Verhoeven for Robocop. Which, again, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> God. Actresses, obviously, Melinda Dillon for Harry and the Hendersons, Nancy Allen for Robocop, Susan Sarandon for The Witches of Eastwick, Robin Wright for The Princess Bride. The winner was Jessica Tandy for Batteries Not Included, but the last nominee was Lorraine Gary for Jaws the Revenge. Oh, Jesus. No, not Jaws the Revenge. No, uh, no John Lithgow nomination, though. That's disappointing. Which- it is. I mean, if it's going to be overrepresented in those other categories, it sure shit deserves representation in Best Actor. If you go to the, what is it, 1987 in film. I mean, those wins for Robocop make a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm. And Princess Bride as well. So, the highest grossing movie... Do you, I won't make you guess. The highest grossing movie of the year was Three Men and a Baby with $167 million. Mm. Number two, Fatal Attraction. Number three, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Number four, Good Morning Vietnam. Only the top four earned over $100 million worldwide. Wow. How things have changed, eh? Yeah. Number five, Moonstruck. Number six, The Untouchables. Number seven, The Secret of My Success. Number eight, a movie I've never even heard of called Stakeout. Number nine, Lethal Weapon. Number ten, The Witches of Eastwick. And then between, between them and Harry and the Hendersons, you've got stuff like... Dirty Dancing, Dragnet, Outrageous Fortune, Eddie Murphy Raw, the stand-up special, and something called Throw Mama from the Train, which uh, is about a bitter ex-husband who wants his former spouse dead. Not Mama. Right, huh? 
a put upon mama's boy wants his mother dead who will pull it off oh so i think it's like that take on that what's that alfred hitchcock story where two two guys is it an alfred hitchcock story where two guys meet on a train no two guys meet on a train and decide to kill each other's wives for them Uh, oh like that strangers on the train or something I, i don't know but apparently throw mama from the train stars danny devito and billy crystal (laughs) <laughs> has these two characters. So yes, what 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 little there is in terms of well, I would just say in terms of memorable movies from 1987, it definitely looks like that, but huh. also what what few movies actually like it's actually only fairly recently that movies got this huge in terms of yeah. their their box office growth. Like even when you account for inflation, a dollar in 1987 money is $2.62 in today's money. Even then, the number one movie of that year was Three Men and a Baby, which made $167 million. So in today's money, that would be $437 million. Not bad, but most years not even in the top 10. By today's standards, Harry and the Henderson would have made about $131 million. How about that? But the movie's success also triggered a TV adaptation which aired for 72 episodes over three seasons in first-run syndication from 1991 to 1993. Kevin Peter Hall reprised his role as Harry for a little while before his death in 1991 at the age of 35, but everyone else was recast. Uh, They could not afford John Lithgow. He was replaced by Bruce Davison. It's not the same. No, it isn't. Whoever it was going to be would have been a step down. First-run syndication. They're selling it to local affiliates rather than having a network backing mm. it in the first place. I mean, but still, that's that's three full seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, that's still pretty impressive. From what I can tell, in looking at it, it kind of like desperately wants to be Alf. Yeah, yeah, that that is the impression I got from looking at some pictures. But that is the production history for Harry and the Hendersons, such as it is. Again, there's very very little on there, and, and I wasn't going to. I'm, I mean, I have my limits. I wasn't going to listen to William Deere's audio commentary on the Blu-ray I bought. I might have had some more stuff if I had done that. This has, of course, been uh, something that we've had in the cooker for a little while now, ever since we decided to use that clip from the end of the movie as our anti-vote by soundbite, which is the bit where uh, John Lithgow screams at Harry and smacks him. Plug the clip in here. Get out of here! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? Why can't you go back where you came from? Leave us alone! <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Hmm. So, I suppose we could start with Harry himself. What a wonderful creation. Yeah, yeah. Rick Baker nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, and Kevin Peter Hall really did a good job at the performance of it. Mm. You do wonder... At what point, obviously the Oscars gave it makeup, but you do wonder at what point, is it makeup, is it visual effects, is it costume design? Mm. I mean, at a certain point, it's all three. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. And it's it's a complicated interweaving of all three different things, because the way that suits like that work is there was likely the big physical suit that he has to move around in and do some stunts in. And then there's another suit where he has to do the more close up stuff with the face. Or was it just in and of itself self a full thing like that's a complicated question well kevin peter hall was already seven four so he already towered above the vast majority of the rest of the cast barring john lithgow who is himself in the six foot range and they added another foot on top of that so he was eight foot four there were servos in the mask to do all of the movements and facial expressions 
So he's not seeing through the eyes of Harry. He's, yeah, he's having to do a lot of this stuff probably blind. And that's still incredibly impressive. It's a very, very well put together makeup job, costume job, puppet job, whatever you want to call it. It creates a character out of him. It makes him expressive and real seeming in a way that is is wholly successful. And I think that's both to the, the people who created it, but also Kevin Hall, who's, you know, he his performance brings that out, the way that he moves around into things. Maybe he's not in control of the face, but he is in control of the body. And, and that is, the body language makes it work. You know, you... I do like how in bits of the the fight in the woods when he's perched on top of branches. That's some predator shit right there. He's got the mm. same body language. Uh, can you imagine the alternate universe where Jean-Claude Van Damme finished off the predator and then was Harry and Harry and the Hendersons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at what point do you get him like Granaf's kicking people or doing the splits between two trucks. You put it in somewhere. You'd have to. But I actually think it's a better and more accomplished creation than something like Chewbacca. Yeah. Like Harry is a more believable creature and has more a more of an expressive mm. features to him. I just sent you some behind the scenes photos. So it seems like for some of the shots, it was him in a mask so you could see his eyes. Mm. But in others, it was a sort of mechanical face that would be ambulated around yeah. similar to what it was like in predator pretty much seamless i've heard there are a couple of moments where you can see paul's mouth but other than that you get the feeling like it's a tangible thing in the space you do and that's incredibly important for the other actors as well and this is something i mean this is not really remembered in this bunch but it is one of this bunch it's one of the amblin movies of the 80s it's one of the spielberg driven genre pieces you know yeah. the family entertainment stuff that sort of made his name beyond the movies that he made himself which were many and not usually high quality the stuff that he produced during that period gave him this sort of stature in hollywood as yeah. as being someone who made this kind of sort of fantastical family storytelling and you can definitely see the et in this oh yeah when george is going out to the back shed the yeah. way that that shot feels incredibly E.T. Well, think about it this way. It's they find this paranatural being in the middle of the woods. They take it home. It lives in their shed for a period of time. It ends up liking some human junk food and then gets hunted down by a group of armed people. Not the government, but definitely crazy people. And then it has to just go back home, and we end up seeing that there were more of it than just the one. Yeah, it's very much the same structure. Obviously, it's on a different scale to E.T. Yeah, and I don't think Elliot ever slapped E.T. Imagine if that was the way he tried to get E.T. to leave. <laughs> E.T., fun! Gives E.T. a black eye. No, Elliot, Elliot swings for him. E.T. catches the hand. I'm actually just looking at this here. Apparently, this movie cost only $500,000 less to make than E.T. did. <laughs> and and that was, what, five years earlier? How about that? Well, they do have that portion where they shoot in the back lot. Yeah. <laughs> where it's a bunch <laughs> of, like, paranoid locals with their guns and shit trying to hunt down yeah. Harry. I suppose that that's what you get when you've got William Deering instead of Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg can give you all of that atmosphere. I'm not a huge fan of E.T., but, you know, you look at some of the screenshots of that movie and 
the backlighting silhouettes and the, obviously the moonshot and all of that stuff. I mean, Deering is not going to give us that. Well, here's a question for you. How many people shot each other that night? <laughs> because I'm thinking there's a body count. Yeah, probably. It is America. If anything in the past six, seven years has shown us what things are like when a bunch of armed lunatics are walking around in the streets, making a panic about nothing, I mean, there's probably someone accidentally shot another person. There was probably someone who went there, wasn't even hunting Sasquatch, was just, just had a gun. It's America, but it's Seattle, so I don't know. Well, let's talk about George. The John Lithgow role here. What I will say is, and this is broadly for every everything, is that they really make good time yep. in this. Yeah. I'm saying this movie starts and five minutes later they hit a Sasquatch with their car. It, does, it, just, it, it doesn't it. waste a second of time. When we were watching this, I got up to get some snacks and we paused it to see the running time. We were already halfway through it and I'm like, shit, this film moves. It doesn't waste its time. It just gets to the things and it's relatively short as well. It's two hours long. Really? Yeah. Didn't feel it. I don't know. I, it felt like it to me. <laughs> but it does a lot of this character development stuff sort of on the fly. Mm. And that mm. is both a, a, a strength of it and a weakness in the sense that it's constantly keeping things moving. It's constantly moving on to new sort of comedic set pieces to, I suppose, keep the kids entertained and keep the family entertained. But I do think it kind of sometimes creates some breathless character arcs that really the whole turn that George is making isn't as well plotted out as I would have liked it to be. Mm. It's similar to when... A parent is like, no, we're not getting a dog, we're not getting a dog, and then they get a dog, and it's meant to be for the kids, but the dad or the mum ends up being the main carer, main lover of the pet. Sure, but, like, if the dad really loved going out and killing dogs on the weekend. Look, it would be different if he was a an accomplished Sasquatch hunter. Okay, that so- That would be different. Here's my theory about the nature of Harry and the rest of the Bigfoot Sasquatches. In cryptozoology, there's a difference between the Sasquatch and the Bigfoot, but I'm not going to get into that. That's its own whole thing. Uh, it's regional. Uh, yeah, doesn't matter. None of it's real anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My theory is that Harry and the rest of the Bigfoot are wood sprites. Big feet. Big feet. Would that be the plural, or would just I don't know. No, I think the I think Bigfoot is the plural. Yeah, it's the same as the singular. So. I think that they are wood spirits. What is a group of big feet? Bigfoot? Got big feet? Shit, you've got me saying that. It's just, oh, I don't know. A pack? A herd? A grumble? A grumble is very good. I like that. Um, A Nike. A Nike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the feet thing. A Nike of Bigfoot. A Yeezy of Bigfoot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah a, bu- yeah, a bunch of Bigfoot come out of the woods speaking anti-Semitic lines. <laughs> Jesus. Do you think that they're woodland sprites, basically? Sort of, yeah. Because, like, they clearly have compassion for other creatures that live in the woods. Mm-hmm. And their whole thing, I reckon, is as protectors of the wilderness. Pretty poor at it, but that's kind of what they do. Which leads into the environmentalist message and the anti-hunting message of this film, which is very much where the relationship between Harry and George and the relationship between George and his father exists, because George works at a hunting store, 
But they sell guns, they sell traps, they sell trail cameras, all the whole shtick. And when all of this fervor is occurring, all of this mass hysteria about this supposed Bigfoot, everyone goes to the hunting store, buys up all the guns, and they basically roam the street like vigilantes looking for this peeping Sasquatch. That hits the other big theme, mass hysteria. So I want to read you something, Lawson. One of the customers at the hunting store, when everything's popping off... The customer that George yells at and says, Well, we've got some big guns and some big, big guns, but I'm afraid we're all out of big, big ammo. And all that stuff, the guy says, Hey, but the thing was near my house. Where do you live? Devon Street. Where was the sighting? On the corner of Maple and Oglevy. There is an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which is about mass hysteria. Follow me here. Oglevy is the name of the scientist at the beginning of War of the World. And that's too... a bit of a stretch. Devon is one of the last cities that ever hung women for witchcraft in the UK. It's all a bit of a stretch. But there's, that's three points of connection in an offhand line. All three of those stories are to do with mass hysteria and mass panic in some sense. Yes, but they're also not exactly rare names in the English language. Yes, true. But I checked. There are no streets in Seattle with any of those names. Because this probably wasn't shot in Seattle. It was probably just shot by people who'd never been to Seattle on a pack lot somewhere. Like, this is where we, we're always it going to differ. It connects to one of the themes of the movie. I don't think it's a mistake. Don't treat me like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I gave you three points of contact, my guy. That's the rule, is it not? <sighs> I think it was on purpose. All right. Like, fine. I don't see it. I, I find it to be a bit of a stretch, but that's always going to be the difference between me and you guys is that I have a lot harder a time pulling in some of that stuff than you. Like the woodland sprite thing. I'm like, okay, but where is that in the movie? It just is a hairy guy. It's a headcanon. Anyway, so on to the character of George and John Lithgow's performance. None of this really works without Lithgow. No. No. He's the counterpoint to Harry. Yeah, and you need an actor who can surrender himself to it. You know what I mean? With an actor who's more self-serious... You're not getting the openness that John Lithgow provides as a performer. I've been listening to John Lithgow's autobiography. I'll get around to talking about that later on. But what he suggests that he himself brings as a performer is a willingness to do whatever he needs to do. And he brings that here. And especially when you're working side by side with the person in the creature outfit, you need to suspend your disbelief because you've met the person inside of it. Obviously, it's going to be easier with the thing physically there to interact with, but there's still that quality that you need to bring. Like a a sort of childlike wonder. You have to understand the kind of movie that you're making. Mm. And I think Lithgow understands. He does the job that's required of him to have George's character arc, to have him go from Bloodthirsty Hunter to peace-loving hippie, basically. Lithgow is doing a lot of the work in terms of that character arc, too. Yes. Like, he understands what he's being asked to do. He's and he carrying it. it on his back. Exactly. <laughs> like, there's not much really in the text that is being communicated without him. No, that's why I said with a different actor, it doesn't work. It just doesn't. And also what Lithgow is able to do in... It's like... 
the scene from the movie where he strikes Harry. Yeah. That's the scene that everyone should see. When he's begging him to leave, Lithgow is selling it. Mm. He's on the verge of tears. Of course, when he strikes Harry, that's hilarious. Especially yeah. with the sound effect. Oh, it's really sad. He's like saying he doesn't love him anymore, that he ne- just needs to go. And it's like, oh, well, that sucks. But then he slaps him and it's like, okay, now it's funny. What doesn't help it is the score, the Bruce Bofton score. Bruce it, is so, it is so sappy and so sincere. It's the definition of generic. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's just become generic in all of the years since that because it's so common maybe at the time it was just the in thing it really it's almost it's quite mockable a great a great deal of scores back then had that sort of like sickly sweet tone to them especially the kids films what about that outro song <laughs> the, the, the credit song hold on let me find the title of it love lives on written by <laughs> barry mann and bruce Wharton. lyrics by cynthia will and will jennings performed by joe cocker yeah i, I legitimately laughed my ass off <laughs> I had to just cackle because nothing in that movie justifies the amount of cheese that that yeah. song has. And I promise you we're using that as the outro for this. I, d- I texted you after having watched the movie, but before you guys did, I said... Watch out for the take on me, rotoscope footage of John Lithgow. That was well done, though. <laughs> I have to give them that. When you watch Harry and the Hendersons, make sure you stay for the credits to see Take On Me music video-style rotoscope footage of John Lithgow and the Bigfoot hanging out while the Joe Cocker song plays in the background. <laughs> It really is kind of nuts. Like, it's got no business being, given what the movie that it's coming after. Exactly. It's so sappy. It is so... It's meant to be so heart-rending, but it just ends up being funny because of the context. But I still loved it because of how silly that was. Yeah. It didn't make any sense being there, and I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I also think that it's interesting and kind of a good choice to have the adult be the one who has the special relationship with the fantasy creature. Because in, yeah. e- in something like E.T., Iron Giant, you have the child mm. be the central focus. A-, a child's mind is something constantly on the verge of changing. He's sort of the Scrooge of the movie. Mm. Exactly. It's much more effective. And yeah, the script doesn't do the legwork, but it's way more effective that it's the adult who is the one yeah. who's bought in 100%. It is the adult who we follow on the journey. An adult's mind takes more to change. That's kind of what they're going for. It they Do they speedrun it? Yes, but it's still there. I like it because it's different from other movies of its ilk. It's, it is the adult getting involved and invested in the mythical creature, because if you think about it, in other Bigfoot movies or other mythological creatures i don't know if there's some movie where chupacabra comes in starts singing songs and the kid (laughs) falls in love with it i don't know maybe the Mothman has one of these kinds of movies in him but it is always the kid i have to say i would love to see the Mothman variation of this that'd be dope (laughs) as hell 
Yeah, in, instead of knocking the fridge over, he just opens it and is just standing there in the light. Just just <laughs> struck. No, he just walks into the fireplace or something. Instead of destroying the house, he's just up on the roof just staring at the light bulbs. Just sort of slapping the wall trying to get out. Well, talking a little bit about that sort of first encounter in the, the house when he wakes up in the night. It's filmed like a horror movie. Exactly. That's the thing that, <laughs> that I think is one of the interesting choices that the movie makes is that it's actually not afraid to allow Harry to be kind of scary at the start of it. Yeah. I mean, not scary in terms of, like, scaring the, the audience or the adult audience at any any rate, but in terms of having him be like, no, he is kind of like this big hulking, they think he's a wild animal, he's roaring at them, he's pushing things over, he's chasing them around. Mm. Like, it is, It he feels a little bit dangerous in that yeah, first time. Yeah. And Lithgow nearly pops him in the head. Mm. Nearly takes his head oh, off. Oh, yeah. When he was pointing the gun at him, I was like, take the shot. Take the shot. Be a hero. Save your family. You've seen Red Dragon, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you remember the part where Dollarhide is in the house and he's attacking the he's attacking Will and his son. I would love to edit the shot of Lithgow standing outside the window with the gun, with the gun into that, and have it be him who shot Dollarhide. <laughs> you just splice it in there. You could do it. It's possible. John Lithgow takes the shot. I'll tell you what that that first encounter uh, in the middle of the night. I find it a little hard to take that too seriously <laughs> because just the amount of screaming that's going on and no one in the neighbourhood comes to check, no yeah. one calls the police. Like I've the, the woman who was taking care of their dog was right next door. Their local pharmacy got an order of Prozac and everyone was just out like a light. My neighbours have not a baby not a newborn baby but a very small child like it can't speak yet and it will cry at the drop of a hat like it takes very little to set it off personally i think it's a bit of a wuss like that's life kid it's only downhill from here i always knew you were weak i have i have been woken up multiple times by this kid screaming i now imagine that you know Bigfoot's roaring and John Lithgow's shouting help me help me and people are running around screaming and corsages are being eaten like, not a chance in hell does not the, half the neighbourhood hear that, especially in, like, a suburban street like that that's fairly quiet. Oh, yeah. And the houses are so close yeah. together, too. They're very close together. I mean, at the end, um, you have, uh, is it Irene? Is that her name? The, the busybody so. next-door neighbour? She sees David Suchet, like, prowling around with roses from her window like they're they're within shouting distance easy yeah i also think that that's like what was their plan or what was george's plan i should say like he just brings back the corpse and goes to sleep what was the goal here well, Who's, dead. who was he going to contact why the government yeah but like museum why yeah you gotta take it to a museum why just leave it overnight like <laughs> It'll keep. Want to just take it to the police station or to City Hall or I don't know where you take it. You take it body, straight to the museum. Exactly. Skin it the moment you kill it. <laughs> Let no meat go to waste. He's a big boy. He could feed you for a month at least. Kids, we're having Bigfoot stew again. They just mount Heavy's head on the wall. Pick out the buckshot. I do like that touch later on in the film, though, when that lady sees Harry and screams and faints. <laughs> <laughs> that then we hear on the news that this woman has reported seeing this Bigfoot, but she woke up on the roof of her car. Mm. That this is what Harry does, because apparently this is what he thinks 
how human beings treat their injuries. <laughs> well, see, that's the only reason why we get two scenes of them putting him back on top of the car. It is so that that gag can be done later in the film. If that gag wasn't earlier in the film, it would have felt like he was trying to sacrifice that woman to his pagan god. Like, using the car as an altar. I do like that he misunderstands in that way. It's charming. Mm. Well, yeah, that's all the stuff that's really working for me. I mean, for the most part, I think the humour in this is, is too broad and too obvious for me. But the stuff that is working is the cutesy stuff. It's the silly stuff with Harry. It's, you know, it's it's him watching TV and laughing uproariously and... <laughs> Him being taught how to sit. He has such a human laugh. Yeah. But what I, I, I think there's that look that actually telegraphs from fairly early on that Harry is smarter maybe than even they realise until the very end. Because there's that. It's it's just after he's done the, the three different sits all in a row. <laughs> and it's this like little sly look he gives Lithgow. And Lithgow responds as if he's just on the verge of realising that Harry's basically mucking him around. Yeah, he's fucking with him. I did think that that was pretty interesting. And He clearly has a great deal of sapient thought. I quite like his reactions when the daughter is yelling at him, screaming at him. He's like, mm. uh, uh, He's like, oh, uh, shit. No, 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 I don't like this, I don't like this. He's like, he doesn't get the words, he gets the vibe, though. You don't need to understand English to be able to know that that's not a good energy. But then he get he gets angry and like screams back at her, which I yeah. think is again I I like that they are willing to make Harry seem a little bit dangerous at the start. He's got a little edge to him, which is good, which you wouldn't get from someone like E. T. Okay, who is basically just adorable and agreeable and loves Reese's Pieces like me. I'm just gonna leave that one right there. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not gonna touch that. I was that teeing one. it up for you, Lawson. Some of the posters and cover art. <laughs> oh yeah, some of the posters and cover art of Harry and the Hendersons like look like it should be like the dating game killer or something like <laughs> the the primary cover is it's harry he's the largest figure in the cover and he's holding a photograph oh yeah oh yeah that's the blu-ray art but the original poster kind of looks like a horror movie um that's I why think i, I said have it that- i'm gonna send it to the group yes that looks like a slasher film look at lithgow in that picture <laughs> yes It's haunting. It's it's not a well done. Oh, they did a number on him. Harry looks good. That's actually not even the poster I was referring to. I'll see if I can find it. But there's one, which is why I said the dating game killer, because it is just him, like, in the darkness on a doorstep offering a single rose. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's haunting. It's worse than you think it is. It kind of also reminds me of that bit from The Simpsons, You Got the Dud. (laughs) You got the squatch. Here it is. I found it. Oh, oh no! <laughs> That's a Goosebumps cover. Yeah, because it is just his eyes in the dark, and then his oh, hands God. looming out of the dark with a, a red rose. Oh, in that case, Harry could be anything. Okay, and the tagline of the top, which is different to the when you can't believe your eyes, trust your heart thing, according to science, Bigfoot doesn't exist. Which, again... <laughs> That's a threatening energy to be coming at me with. Yeah, according to science, Bigfoot doesn't exist. 
And according to science, bees shouldn't be able to fly, but they do so anyway. Oh no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Uh, Keep B-movie away from here. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. Hmm, yellow and black. Change it up a bit. I know where you sleep. I know where you sleep. That legitimately looks like it's Harry interviewing and auditioning to be Ted Bundy. I kind of like this this next one. Harry has busted his way through the doorframe. It's another one of those goosebumps type. That's a much better Lithgow. But this also, I like it's it's dynamic. <laughs> it uh, is dynamic. I... It's got movement to it. Oh no! <laughs> oh, I hate. Yeah, this is the Japanese poster. That's the cover of a horror manga. No wonder, like they were saying, oh, is was this marketed properly? And it's all about, oh, did people know that it's Bigfoot? Well, did people know that it was a family movie? <laughs> did people know that it wasn't like I don't know the thing or something? That. That indicates some Junji Ito shit right there. Yeah, and look, if you look, even more than just it being one eye and two fingers, it's the discoloration on both the blinds and the wall around it. Looks sketchy as hell. It looks sketchy as hell, and that makes me so concerned. I have to give some credit to Donamechi, who plays Dr. Wallace Wrightwood. Uh, he's the resident Bigfoot expert who has, like, a little tourist trap out near the woods. Who knows Jacques? They'd been friends for a long time, but Jacques has been unable to let go of the hunt. Uh, like, the hunt has consumed his mind. I love his performance when he sees Harry for the first time. When he knows that his entire life hasn't been wasted. Yeah. And honestly, outside of John Lithgow, that's the most powerful shit I've seen in this movie. It's honestly such a good performance there. That poster that you just sent makes it look like George and Harry are the dads and the rest <laughs> of them are the kids. Yeah, it does kind of. I, ju I did just send through another one of uh, an advertisement for a colouring competition at a supermarket, but... The way that they've drawn John Lithgow kind of makes him look like Mr. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And Harry's drinking a beer. No, it's... Oh, is he? Yeah, it's a beer. beer. Wow. It's insane. Well, an alcoholic, my guy. Jesus, he doesn't need alcohol. This this cover makes it look it's been transported to San Francisco and they're both bears. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Harry and George raised three children. Yes. I want to start a new game. Whenever it comes to one of these family movies where there's some kind of animal or whatever, what kind of alcoholic would Harry be? What kind of drunk? Would he be sad? Would he be angry? Would he be conspiratorial? What kind of drunk would he be? I kind of think he'd be a sad drunk. Especially since he's seen all of the taxidermied shit in the house. Like, he'd be, he'd be reflecting on that shit. What do you think, Lawson? I don't know, a touchy-feely one, I think. I think he'd, like, want to stroke people's faces. Yeah, 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 I get that, yeah. He touches his love language. <laughs> yes, yes, that is John Lithgow screaming with murderous intent. Yeah, I that's a promotional photo, and, like, that's, that should be for another movie. <laughs> they did not promote this as a family film. This is wild. <laughs> it, it does look like he's cosplaying as Mick Taylor. Kinda. Or is Mick Taylor cosplaying as, uh, as John Lithgow? I mean... He's using the same kind of gun. Well, I I don't think that the David Suchet subplot needs to be in there at all. In fact, I'd lose yeah. it all quite happily. I get what it's kind of going for. It's trying to draw sort of a, a funhouse mirror connection between him and John Lithgow. But yeah. I don't think it's really done enough. I don't know for the life of me why he's got to be French. 
because David Suchet is not French, and you can really tell that from the performance he's giving. But it's not like he was already playing Poirot at this point for, I, I think, ITV. Okay, so why he's not he's not doing he's doing a French accent that isn't good, but he's not doing a cartoon French accent, which would make it entertaining. It's somewhere mm, weird know? in the middle. Yeah, that's what you can say about this movie in general. It's somewhere in the middle. It has. Moments that seem like it's more adult-centric, but it's not for adults because it's got so many moments that are kid-centric. And it's not kid-centric because it says shit too many times. A surprising amount of cussing. Someone calls someone a son of a bitch. That's old-school PG-rated movies for you. Back in the day before the PG-13 rating really started to take off the, you know, they used to let a lot through. They'd let partial nudity through in PG movies back in the day. Yeah, we know. We've seen, uh, what's that, uh... Can't Stop the Music. Yeah, we've seen Can't Stop the Music. There's dick in that, like there straight is dick on. In that, you can see it. It's not. It's not hidden. Well, they used to like even even on TV. I mean, The Simpsons used to have nudity in it. Um, there's like an episode, early episode of The X Files in the '90s that had nudity in it. Of course, then the Janet Jackson thing happened at the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden, everyone started clutching their pearls. It is interesting the way that sort of, in a lot of ways, the culture has become more lax. In terms of the stuff that it allows, I mean, the MPAA doesn't go after horror movies like it used to Hmm. during the time that Harry and the Hendersons was being made. But at the same time, Children's Fair has been quarantined off more strictly. It's weird. It is weird. It's not even one of those things where you say they've gotten more lax. They've just changed priorities, it looks like. Yeah, Hmm. the, the vibe and the style of kids' movies has changed in a pretty significant way because... I think they're trying to appeal to families in the sense that there are these different age brackets that kids' movies are trying to capture. Mm. For They're trying to capture like very young toddlers, that sort of midpoint from 5 to 10 is a uh, age bracket, and then they sort of bracket things off kind of like that. It's an example of how there have been formulas that have developed over the past 100 years that have become very corporatized and a lot of things are trying to fit within these particular brackets so not to make waves disney and pixar are pretty good at not bracketing off the enjoyment of their films particularly the more kid-centric films sure but at the same time disney would never make a live action family movie rated pg these days that had people dropping shit every 10 minutes of course not of course not and that's an example of where they haven't kids movies have very much changed the amount of threat that one can show in a kids movie has changed like et goes hard near its end both elliot and et nearly die and it's all of these government spooks being all really suspicious and whatever and there's a proper like don't they cut into et at one point i don't know it's been a while but then even, like, Spielberg has to go back on that and do his best to shave off those sharp edges because he goes back in in the re-release decades later and CGI's the guns out of their hands to replace mm. them with walkie-talkies. Emmett Walsh is playing John Lithgow's father. He's only, like, ten years older than him. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a perfect casting. Yeah, but he looks a lot older. So. Yeah. It, and Emmett yeah. Walsh, I do love me some Emmett Walsh, but let's be honest, time and genetics have not been <laughs> especially kind to him. Uh, no, he's got permanent harbinger energy. He's looked he's looked like he's 70 since he was like 30 years old. Mm. Yeah, but what I think is so great about his performance here is that he's adopted the same kind of rhythm and patter as John Lithgow. He's tried to affect the same kind of voice. 
Mm. Which actually fits. Bizarrely, I was sitting there like, okay, that's actually kind of spooky how close he's getting. The drawing that George Henderson does of Harry was one of the original design images of Harry that Rick Baker did. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's cool. That's pretty deep. I do think I do think before we finish off here, we should talk a little bit about sort of the environmentalist thing beyond the panic in the street stuff. I mean, this is a movie that's actually fairly, uh, I suppose today, the sort of internet comment boards would complain that it is woke and act like yeah. no movie that movies were never made like that back in the old days, <laughs> that this is only a new phenomenon that movies might actually try and say something. Whereas actually, no, this is just art. Get Deal with it. Art has themes. John Lithgow's been woke for decades, nerds. Get over it. I don't know. I don't think that they quite landed as well as they could. No. It's, again, it comes into some of my problems with George's character art, that you've got these, like, little stuffed statues and things. and It's fast-tracked. It's very fast-tracked. It's it's really... They don't even really do a good job of justifying. Well, they try and pussyfoot out of it, where they're like, oh, he... He never wanted to go hunting when he was a kid anyway. He just wanted to draw, but his dad wouldn't let him. Why? Why are you easing off on that? Why not just make him make him the Charlton Heston of Portland? Like, <laughs> like to make from my cold dead hands. <laughs> why, why not just make him like a true believer? Why do you- I'll be buried with my guns. And go take that Squatch's head! <laughs> I'm gonna take these guns down to hell and fight the devil. <laughs> So it's not really contended with in a way that I feel is particularly useful. I mean, it is sort of all of these themes, the panic in the street themes, the environmentalist themes, the sort of vegetarian themes, if you want to call it that. It's all that the mo- operating on the most surface level stuff. Which well, yeah, is- it's, it isn't a complex film. Like, earlier today, we talked about a movie that was desperate for some kind of mature look at its themes here this doesn't necessarily need to is that weird it'd be nice if it did though it'd be nice if it did but it's not really screaming out for it i think it is trying to be a feel-good film before it's trying to have a message and even when it has a message it's it's it is ham-fisted in that same way that a lot of 80s kids movies and kids media were ham-fisted with their messages well and here's the other thing that I really dig about this, we get actually a lot of Lithgow here. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing his various levels things too. A couple of his own stunts, it looks like, because that tumble that he does when he gets pushed over by Harry, that looked like him. Yeah. And he mentions in his autobiography that he likes doing practical stuff himself, uh, especially when he was capable of doing so. Uh, a lot of the more dangerous stuff nowadays, he obviously has stunt people, but he was a particularly good tumbler in his youth when he was on stage, and I think he brought <laughs> that to a lot of his physical comedy later on. Okay, for the role of George, we're looking for someone who's a good tumbler. Doesn't hurt. They need to be around 30 years old, able to play younger or older. They need to have the look of a good, reasonable family man who owns quite a few guns and stuffed animals, and he also needs to know how to tumble. Alright, is there anything else that you guys would like to add? I don't think so. That seems like it's about it. Hmm. All I'm gonna add is I'm kind of disappointed, Lawson. Why? I thought this was. I thought Lithgow would be able to carry this over the line. Oh, longer. Lithgow's great, but like you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to make the movie around him any better. Okay, what would you do if you were driving through the woods 
and you came across Harry. If I struck him with my car? Take a photo with my phone and... Yeah, exactly. Am I Have I hit him with my car? Have I just seen him crossing the road? What? He's standing in the middle of the road, hands outstretched. Uh, take video footage with my phone and then get out of there. Comes towards you, begging for a hug. Just drive away. Like, I don't know what you want my response to be, Sean. Why like- are you presenting him a choose-your-own-adventure? He breaks into a sprint, chasing your car down the wooded road. <laughs> Where do you think this is going to go, Sean? Like, what are, you, what are we doing? We've already recorded for three hours. I want this to be over. <laughs> you can either... Turn down the left path, the right path, or slam on your brakes so he ends up running into the back of your car. John, what do you choose? It's time to stop. <laughs> we should, we should, that should if we ever do t-shirts, that should be with like the first one is Jean, It's time to stop. I, I wouldn't want to bunch. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I've said it too often. It wasn't to choose your own adventure. It was a Harry dating sim. Right. Okay. <sighs> Well, I, yeah, we're definitely at the end of our rope at the moment. We, if I don't know if we've mentioned it on this episode yet, but we did record the whole of the law-abiding citizen episode directly before this. We're operating at a bit of a disadvantage. I'm not. I feel great. I, I had a nap. Your yeah, your your definition of great is different from from Harley and myself. Talked about the movie. Let's move on to the IMDb Parents Guide for the uninitiated. The IMDb Parents Guide is when we talk about the prudish and/or pervy entry in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie that we're talking about. This week, there is one in the sex and nudity section. Harry licks a screen with an adult male on it, and he seems pleased with it. Yeah. So Harry I- Henderson, queer icon. <laughs> I mean, in 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 the same way that I think the Babadook is. <laughs> like not like, really, I, but go off, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think that person is thinking a little too hard about that. Please look, how he gives himself. I think it's more that he knows that George is out there. I don't think this guy has ever seen. Well, he has seen a TV. Never mind. It could be that I don't know. It's kind of an inscrutable look that he's giving. Even though that street that he's on does look like he's about to find T-Birds strung up with knives in the bloody alleyway next to him. So, who knows? Well, why don't we move on now to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and in this case, who in addition to his current role would be recast with character actor John Lithgow? Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie has got to be Kevin, Peter Hall, and the makeup and effects team that helped put Harry together. I think he is this movie's most successful creation. It's He's expressive, he's fun, he's adorable, he's entertaining. The movie's always at its best when it's just letting Harry be Harry and doing all of these you know wacky things it's actually a lot of the stuff around it that i think kind of lets that stuff down and ends up dragging a little bit for the film so i'm gonna go with them in terms of my favorite scene or sequence i'm gonna go with the the one little beat when lithgow is at the top of the ladder about to shoot harry and and thinks better of it because i think it is the movie with its most sort of dramatic heft in that moment and that's something that's brought about both by lithgow because i think it's his best moment of acting in the movie but it's also brought about by the harry costume and by kevin hall that you really see the you see a sort of expressiveness and a reaction to it you see that he understands what the gun is and that's just a a moment where the movie's more serious ideas work in a in a way that they don't usually work for me 
So I'm going to go with that scene. In terms of who I would recast with John Lithgow, in addition to the role he already plays, I think we all came into this movie expecting to be like, oh yeah, Harry, put him as Harry. But that's not what I'm going to do now that I've, now that I've seen the film. I think he actually would fit better as Jacques Lafleur. It is, as I said, that sort of twisted funhouse mirror image of the George character already. And I think that John Lithgow could bring a lot more of the appropriate wackiness and energy to that role than David Suchet is doing. And I think that Mm. John Lithgow would probably see the need for and understand the necessity for a, a really sort of like insane French accent, a really goofy one, and and bring a lot more fun to that role, rather than the sort of weird, like, stubbled Euro-trash thing that David Suchet's doing. I don't even know what's going on there. It's like out of an entire different movie. But um, I think he would work well there. I definitely think that Jacques has lost people to Sasquatch before. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, he's he's coming from a place of trauma. He's lost people, but when you really delve into that and ask him to explain that statement, it just turns out that... Um, you He's know, driven them his away. His wife and kids just couldn't watch him do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were just so sad and they had to get out mm. because it was consuming their lives as well. I would have to give my MVP to John Lithgow. It doesn't work if it's not him. It simply doesn't. He knows how to play to the adults in the audience and to the children in the audience. He's a consummate professional and... He hits that balancing act. Described him before as an actor who's a master at bluster. And he has to do a little bit of that here, but he also brings something incredibly genuine. When he's having scenes with Harry, you can tell that he's 100% in, you know? He's not performing at a remove like another performer would be. He's going 100% honest, and he's finding his inner child for that. And letting his inner child guide his performance. Also, fun fact, his inner child loved big hats. Uh, he loved big hats as a child. Anywho, who I would, what my favorite scene or sequence was, it's got to be the scene where Harry's causing the big ruckus in the house when they first see him. All of that stuff ending with the moment where, where George doesn't take the shot. I just think it's incredibly well done because you don't see that kind of practical damage uh, in movies like this. We get a lot of movement from Kevin Peter Hall here as Harry. He does a lot of his physical comedy here, uh, especially the thing when he's trying to figure out where the rest of the deer's body is. Mm. That's kind of how he is most charming. Then it culminates in this beautiful friendship between George and Harry when Harry refuses to pop his head off. And when George doesn't shoot him in the head and destroy his personality, it just comes off really charming, that whole thing. And all of it was done practically, which is great to see. From Harry down to all the damage on the set, it's... Just well done stuff. And who I would recast with John Lithgow? I do think that he could do well as Jacques Lefleur. Especially if John Lithgow is also still George. And you can give him a beard, make him all disheveled and shit. Portray him as like the true dark reflection of what George could have been. Don't you scoff, that's what you were getting at with Funhouse Mirror. Yeah, I know. So... But like the idea of like darkest timeline George is... His family has left him. He has gone full gun nut. He's dedicated himself to hunting one creature uh, to the detriment of himself and others. Yeah, he works as a dark reflection of himself. And if he was also given that role, he would hit the humor of the character, I think, better than Suchet does. Because Suchet is coming at it with kind of a weird sincerity, which I feel gets a little too serious for the character. 
But if you make him just like a completely disheveled shit show of a man, I think John Lithgow could play that equally as well as he plays George. So for me, I have to give my major props to Kevin Peter Hall and Rick Baker and the rest of the makeup and effects people who worked on this film and the character of Harry. Rick Baker has said in the past that Harry is his greatest and favorite creation. And this is saying a lot. This is a guy who has done so much for practical effects and makeup as an art form. He worked on American Wealth in London. He worked on The Thing. He's got such a brilliant mind and he has done such a good job here. He has an incredible career. And for this to be the highlight, it shows you how much fun he had doing it. Yeah, it shows you that he had fun, and there's so much craft that has gone into both the portrayal of the character from Kevin Peter Hall and the design of the character from Rick Baker and the rest of the team. So I have to give it to them. He's beautifully expressive, he's adorable, as Lawson said, and he's just a fantastic character. For my favorite scene or sequence, I think I have to give it to probably the slap. <laughs> It is just such an upsetting moment, because you know that George is only trying to do this for Harry's own good, but Harry doesn't quite understand. He thinks they're best friends. Well, he knows they're best friends. He knows they're best friends, yeah. It has so much pathos and sadness to it, and then he slaps him, and all of that pathos turns into humor, and I just have to laugh. It's just hilarious. But then it ends up being sad again when he just starts walking off. And I really wanted him to end up, like, breaking Jacques in half over his knee. I thought that would have been fun. But anyway, I agree. Let's go as Jacques, because it can be this sort of fun dual role of, you know, straight-edge John Lithgow, and you've got nutty John Lithgow doing an outrageous accent, and he's just being odd and weird. They don't even have... I mean, thematically, yes, they are the dark mirror to use philosophical terms and stuff but more than that it is an easy shorthand for the younger people in the audience and some of the older people it's it's an easy shorthand to do also it allows it to be a yeah it also allows it to be a spiritual prequel to raising cane all right so now we are going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro having in the henderson's episode and i must remind you this is our last episode of the year so leave it on a good note everyone Lawson, why don't you set us off first? My answer's no. I'm not pro this movie. I'm not anti this movie, but I just, it doesn't get enough right for me to be pro it. I think it drags. I think its handling of its themes are, are fairly dull and amateurish. It never really scratches beyond the surface for me. It, it does have a fantastic central character in, in Harry, and it does have some really good, solid work being done by John Lithgow. You know, it just, it, it is what it is. It is a mid-tier kids movie from the 80s that, you know, has enough has had enough staying power to, you know, maintain a footprint in the cultural consciousness, a thumbprint in, in people's collective psyche, but it doesn't have really much within itself to recommend it in the year 2022. Don't you mean a big footprint? Sure. Sure, John. Whatever makes you happy. That passed through my head, but I wasn't going to say it. Well, that's the difference between you and me, Harley. I'm not a coward. Restraint. <laughs> I liked this a lot more than Lawson did. I suppose I'm just more in touch with my inner child. And I really appreciated what it was doing. But it is a mid-tier children's movie from the late 80s. 
That's just what it is. It can't run away from that fact. John Lithgow does a really great job here. He's always electric when he's on screen, but this isn't his best performance. A wonderful creature design from Rick Baker, wonderful physical performance from Kevin Michael Hall, but it's not his best physical performance, and I will disagree with Mr. Baker on this one. It's not his best creation. I would have to give that to the werewolf transformation from uh, American Wealth in London. But it's a lot of really great work, but the rest of the movie doesn't support it. Those three are carrying the movie on their backs. For it to be a really great movie, I need more people putting in legwork. And everyone else, apart from some of the bit parts, don't do it. You know? So, sure. I'm, I'm very far away from anti, but I'm like on high-end ambivalent. Well, I'm pro. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I, I enjoyed this for what it was. I did. And all intellectual reasoning aside, I think the experience of watching a film and your enjoyment of it can supersede the need for that kind of stuff sometimes. Is it perfect? No. Did I have a blast watching it? Absolutely. I enjoyed watching this for what it was. It is a mid-tier kids movie from the 80s. But you know what? I like mid-tier kids movies from the 80s. I do. They've got a charm to them. And this has so much charm to it. The character design is fantastic. I think the performances are exactly pitched the way they need to be, other than Sachet. And I really enjoyed it. I have my headcanons about what Harry's going to do next, and I think he's going to... I think you're going to see him with Greenpeace a few years later throwing rocks at Enron or something. I don't know. George is going to be, like, uh, gluing himself to bridges and shit. Throwing soup at the Mona Lisa. <laughs> there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are unfortunately not a pro Harry and the Hendersons podcast. Aww. It kind of hurt me to do that on our last episode of the year, but you got to be honest. And if you're not honest, what are you doing? Uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find us at Exit Boo the Candy Counter. If you're joining myself on the bright side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about having the Hendersons? Who is your favorite paranormal creature to come out of uh, children's films in the late 80s? Um, you have plenty to pick from. I, I would count uh, robots and AI into that one. You, your mileage simply varies on that. I mean, early 90s had can quite a few of them Johnny too. Five if you stretch. Um, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that on certain apps, it is for individual episodes. Sometimes it's for the show on the whole. Uh, just pay attention to which one you use. And if it's, yeah, just work it out. Work around it. There's methods. I beg of you. Like, comment, and subscribe. I've been able to book an appointment. Honestly, more luck than anything else. He is a busy man. Lots of different irons and a lot of different fires, you understand. Kind of a renaissance man, you could describe him. But he's the closest thing to an expert on these matters that I can find. But at least he's willing to meet with me. But not till after Christmas. Which is fine, I suppose. Most people will be busy anyway. Meeting up with family and friends, having dinner and the like. And of course, trying to avoid the particularly nasty conflict zones. Some folks do brave the dangers sometimes to catch a glimpse of the heroic mechanical Saint Nick, do battle with its terrible inverse, the Krampus. They've never come close to our area in the past, however, so I think I'm going to be alright. We do have run-ins with the Yule Lads, though, so we'll see how it goes. I had Window Licker last time. Terrible, terrible man. Window Peeper. 
No, he started licking. <laughs> That's a new name now. Oh, shit. I still do need to figure out how to broach concepts of time travel with this expert. I have been able to book an appointment with the foremost expert in pretty much everything. Music, theater, performing on stage, performing on screen. Yes, I have booked an appointment with our podcast's <laughs> former patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow. Oh, great. <laughs> but of course, that is after Christmas. Please don't sue us, Mr. Lithgow. I thought you were going to end up, like, seeing Lawson or something. Is Lawson an expert on time travel, the future? And- I don't know. Is John Lithgow an expert on time travel? Any any explanation you could have, Harley, any reasoning you could have, is reasoning that can apply to Lawson. Let's wrap this up. Let's put this baby to bed. <laughs> it's been a long day. All right. So what movie do we have coming up? Oh, first episode of the year in 2023. We will be starting off the year with another sort of something in the in the vein of Mute and, and Pandorum in, in the sense that it is a smaller, strange movie, the kind that we are wanting to do a lot more of in the new year. But... And we will be taking a look at the 2009 film Pontypool. And the less said about that and the specifics of it, the better. I literally have no idea what's going on in that. Yes, Sean has spoken to me privately and he does know enough about that movie that I would like him to keep from you, Harley, because I, I think there's, he, he knows a little too much. I am going to hazard a guess on the title. I think it's British and I think they were clowns. Well, you'll have to wait and see. So... You actually can't find it available for streaming in Australia. I have a imported US DVD and you guys are going to use a VPN to find it on Canadian Amazon. Your own mileage may vary. You might have to hunt around for it if you really want to follow along at home. That is going to be our first episode back. And I'm looking forward to it because it's got some really interesting ideas to talk about. And we do have an interesting year coming up. Of course, later into the year, we have our best of 2022 list. That mm-hmm. bonus episode will be coming up. We still have a bunch to get through. 2022 was a very stacked year. I do also want to say thanks for being with us if you're a long-time listener. Thanks for joining us if you're new to the podcast. Yes, if this is your first episode, please, please don't judge us too harshly. <laughs> we've, we've been playing out a bit of a handicap today, so... But we do like to, at the end of the year for our final episode, to just... Give thanks, give our well wishes to the audience and to everyone. We hope you have had a great Christmas because this is coming out after Christmas has already occurred. But we do also hope you have a wonderful new year. Uh, Whatever you celebrate, we hope you celebrate it well and in the presence of people you love or maybe even alone if you prefer that. Of course, however you wish to do it is how you wish to do it and we hope you have a good time regardless. I love just listening to you sort of like... Try like work your way into a hedge maze that you then need to find yourself out of <laughs> linguistically. <laughs> you're you're trying to cover all your bases. Yeah, I just want to be as broad appeal as we possibly can. Yeah, for our incredibly niche podcast. And if you're desperately alone on Christmas, you know, uh, <laughs> have fun too. <laughs> Tinned turkey and cranberry sauce, picking off the Dorito chips that have fallen onto your swollen belly. <laughs> I hope you have a fantastic holiday, and I hope 2023 is better for you. <laughs> yep, so we will rejoin everyone in the year of our Lord 2023. We've got a lot coming up, and we have to have a discussion, uh, us three, about next year's bonus episode. I do have an idea that I sat on the entirety of this year that I do want to do next year. Until then, you can join us next week for Ponty Pool. Uh,
Until then, I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue, to be that horrible Yule Lad, Sean Lewis. I love